Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jessica Hernandez, where I ask her, how amazing is Indigenous science? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for this episode for a myriad of reasons. But very first, before I even get into it, I'm going to introduce our guest. She is Dr. Jessica Hernandez, who is an Indigenous scholar, scientist, and community advocate based in the Pacific Northwest. In her new book, which just came out yesterday, called Fresh Banana Leaves, she breaks down why Western conservation isn't working and introduces a different model for healing landscapes through Indigenous science. Welcome, Dr. Jessica Hernandez. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. Pleasure is ours. So in some of our episodes around like dam displacement and a few other ones, we started to hear more of our um, experts and some of our guests tell us about indigenous sciences and different ways in which indigenous communities uh, see or utilize science and medicine and land and all sorts of cool stuff. And I was like, I'm new to this party. I need to understand more about this. This is so genius and interesting, and I would just love to learn more, which then introduces you because you're a literal indigenous scholar scientist <laughs> checking all the boxes. Forgive me for not knowing this prior, but is Fresh Banana Leaves your first book? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is my first book. So yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, I'm sure being like a doctor, you've written like a lot of like long stuff, but how was it kind of bringing your passions together in this book? Because in Fresh Banana Leaves, you center your story as an indigenous scientist. So can you share some of that journey with us? Yeah, so I think it was a healing journey to write the book because, you know, as you mentioned, when we write scientific reports or peer review articles, it's kind of dull and boring where we had to, you know, write the abstract introduction. But in this case, in a book, we can actually integrate our testimonies, our stories. And I think that one of the reasons why I decided to write a book is because I wanted to integrate my father's story who, you know, as a child, was a child soldier during the Central American Civil War that impacted his country of El Salvador and, you know, targeted indigenous children to fight either in the army or, you know, in the guerrilla, which is the opposing um, kind of, you know, situation against the government. So I think that being able to write his story and seeing how even growing up, he always tried to not tell me his story because he, you know, as parents, they always want to, you know, kind of secure us, kind of protect us and like protect us from all harm. But, you know, obviously that's not the reality that the world kind of has. So he always wanted to protect me from, you know, this violence that he had to endure as an indigenous child. So my father was in the war um since he was 11 and eventually until he turned 14. So it's a part of his childhood and it's a part of the generation before me. That's kind of hard to ignore, um, especially as a scientist, right? When I talk about our environments and nature. So what, like, what was that like? You're just like minding your own business. You're like a baby Jessica Hernandez. And then you were just like, I am really interested in science. And like, when did that kind of spark happen for you? Yeah, so I was born in Los Angeles, California. So in South Central, that's where I grew up. And basically, given that my parents, you know, were the only ones displaced from our relatives, you know, going back home and going back to my, you know, ancestral lands, my indigenous lands. So I think that, you know, I had that dualities of living in the city, but also going back home to the, you know, 
were areas where, you know, I was immersed in the environment. So I think that when I became more interested in our environment was because, you know, I loved listening to my grandmother tell her stories on how, you know, she will, you know, sing to plants, sing to, you know, animals, kind of, you know, build that relationship. And my father, even though, you know, at a young age, since he lost his father at a young age, he had to, you know, as the eldest, he had to take care of his family. So he became a fisherman. So I love listening to the stories of the child, you know, how he will create um, fishing nets out of like, you know, the materials that were located in that nearby environment. And I think that that just grew my fascination. And eventually, as I grew up, I actually found out that, you know, there is an environmental science. It's actually a field that you can study as a student, even beyond, you know, your high school years. And then once you kind of realized that, were you like, that's for me? And you've just like, were kind of on track to study that and go that way? Or did you, or were you ever like, no, I want to be an astronaut? Or was it pretty much like this <laughs> the whole time? Yes, I think um, growing up, I always wanted to be a teacher. So I was able to be a teacher, right? Because I think oftentimes we think that, you know, only teachers have to study education. Um, but I wanted to be a teacher because I love working with with kids, especially children. So I wanted to be like a K through 12 teacher. And then um, studying environmental sciences, I majored in marine sciences. So it was like more oceanography. I was passionate about it, but it wasn't necessarily um, very, you know, like, pink and diamonds right it was like you know a, a field that is like dominated by cisgender men so obviously they oppress queer folks and they oppress like mm. women right so I think that oftentimes I saw that right where the men were elevated in the field while you know women and LGBT and like you know any other gender that's like non-male was kind of oppressed or silenced in that way so I think that while I love the field it wasn't a field that was like friendly or open to embracing me as an indigenous woman I wish that that was the first time I heard that theme when it came to um, scientists and females and non-males like existence in the scientific field. So I hate that story. So how do you approach the practice of indigenous science? Because first of all, and I'm definitely guilty of this, I think that so many Americans uh, only think of like Native Americans. And there is like so many other indigenous communities that exist all over the world so diverse, so thriving, contemporarily thriving as well. Like it's not this idea of the past, which is part of why we're here or why I'm here today and why I'm so glad that you've given us our time. So can you tell us about like the practice of indigenous science and how you as an indigenous scientist approach that practice? So I think indigenous science, and I think it's important to situate what Western science is, right? So Western sciences, you know, we often coin the founders of these like, you know, European men who came from, you know, Europe to the Americas and kind of brought their theories and ideas. But with indigenous science, we're in tune with nature. We have those close relationships. We have lived there in a certain environment for generations, even, you know, previous generations um, dating back to pre-colonization. So I think that with indigenous science, the only difference is that it's more holistic. Um, Western science tends to be binary, right? And like very straightforward where, you know, you have the scientific method, you have to follow these six steps versus indigenous science is more holistic, right? We don't separate ourselves, our spirituality, our medicine, our identities from the science itself. And I think that with indigenous science being more holistic, we can be ourselves while practicing that science itself. So I think indigenous science is more knowledge that has been passed to us through the generations that, you know, date back to since time immemorial, which is pre-colonization. 
Fierce. I love that. Like (laughs) saying, I need, that's like a cool saying. So it's a more holistic approach. So does that mean that there's like a, a, like a more like um, locally or like place-based approach to how indigenous science is approached? Yes, that's perfect, actually, because, yeah, indigenous science is place based. Right. So for me, like my indigenous science kind of is stronger in my communities, in my ancestral lands. So when my dad was teaching me about our environments, he was teaching me about the water currents, the fish the animal behavior in his lands. And obviously, you know, you can apply that because I think with indigenous science, we can also adapt it to our current environments, especially for those of us who are displaced, whether it be external through borders or internal, right, from reservations into uh, major cities, urban areas. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay, wait. So this, this like statistic from Fresh Banana Leaves is really major. In, in the book, which again, if you have not got it, through your gorgeous noggins listening to this already. It's called Fresh Banana Leaves, again, available for purchase today. In the book, you know that 80% of the world's biodiversity, 80% of the world's biodiversity is sustained by indigenous peoples who make up less than 5% of the human population. That's major. So what are some examples of indigenous land stewardship? I want to connect it back to what you stated, right? That when we talk about indigeneity, especially in the United States, we tend to focus on the United States and Canada, right? So we focus on Native Americans and First Nations. But, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because I wanted to discuss indigeneity south of the border, which is Latin America. And given that statistic, 50% of the world's biodiversity is located in Latin America. Now you tie that back to um violence, it's, you know, Latin America has become the deadliest place for indigenous leaders um, because, you know, they're either disappear, they're murdered, you know, they face that violence that's not really being stopped by the government. So that given that that 50 percent of the world's biodiversity is located in Latin America, it tends to impact indigenous women the most because, you know, we have the missing and murdered indigenous women um, pandemic that kind of crosses borders. And yes, so 80% of the world's biodiversity is stewarded and caretaken by indigenous people. So I think one of the examples is, you know, and it's it's kind of like a sad example. It's not as like romantic, you know, as we will have think. It's like, you know, the ongoing movements to protect our mother earth, right? We see that in the Amazon rainforest, how indigenous groups are fighting against giant oil companies or also, you know, these large agricultural companies are trying to get rid of their forests in order to for them to, you know, raise cattle, And I think that with that stewardship, going back to indigenous science, knowing that our plants and animals are our relatives rather than, you know, we seeing ourselves as like the hierarchy where we're on top of the um, food pyramid. We see ourselves more as like interconnected, related, right? Because I think that when we tie it to indigenous communities and our creation stories, how we were created as people, all of our creation stories talk about our deities and gods creating us from the elements, from the animals that were near our environments or that local place, our ancestral lands. That's beautiful. And yes, you mentioned earlier that a lot of this indigenous science comes from the fact that a lot of um these different indigenous communities all over the world have lived there like prior to colonization, which spoiler alert, if you guys didn't know, listening to this, this is the same stuff that we talked about in past episodes of getting curious colonization, which a lot of, well, all of these indigenous communities predate 
is the is what brought the idea of what like you know air quote civilization was supposed to look like and this idea of um you know civilizing people and that's and that's where so many of these like highly offensive derogatory ideas that we have commonly that touch the gender binary touches how we consume food touches how we interact with the environment amongst so many other things really came from so um that is something that i think that you know as white people as Americans, as non-native people, as non-indigenous communities, we really need to understand um, more of the impacts that like how we have been, frankly, like propagandified or whatever. Like we've really been taught to separate ourselves from Mm -hmm. like from so many things. So I just think there's such a rich history in indigenous science because these communities have been living in places for way longer than what we've been over here, you know, doing, you know, you know, just pulling a goddamn China shop around here for crying. I mean, (laughs) focus, Jonathan. So can you tell us about that? How that like cross-generational experience really strengthens the knowledge of indigenous science? Yeah. So I think that, you know, you're mentioning all of these things, right? So I think through generations, we're taught to think a different way, right? At least for my communities, like you mentioned the gender binary, we have a third gender that are called muches, muses, as other people mention it, which is, you know, a, you know, a male given birth, you know, at birth, but it has a two spirit. So I think that, you know, when we saw how colonization impacted us, we know we saw the introduction of religion. We saw how our third gender was kind of being attacked or harmed because, you know, the religion tells us that, you know, it's either the binary man and female versus, you know, in our matriarchal society, we still have our muses who are basically consider a gift from God, right? Because every mom wishes that she had a Musa who inherited that two-spirit of a female and a male. And I think that with indigenous science, we're always fighting to make sure that our traditions are kept, even with these um, this web, right? Like you were mentioning the spider web that has all these like frameworks that oppose the ways that we see the world. So basically indigenous science is like the holistic way of looking at the world that kind of puts spirituality at the core. And given that, you know, as individuals, our spirituality is also our medicine. So as you were mentioning, you know, with the food systems, obviously what we eat is our medicine. And as a result, we always see indigenous science. We see the animals as our relatives. We see them as sacrificing their lives to nourish our bodies and the same with our plants. So in your native lands, what do we know about like the amount of time that like your like the generations of your community were located in El Salvador before they were displaced through like all the various ways that displacement happened? What's your gorgeous nation called again? The Zapotec community. So that's in Oaxaca and then the Maya Chorti is in El Salvador. So we are separated by a border. So we're in Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. And we call the Americas Aviala. Yes, fierce. <laughs> Has there been any like fierce like archaeological moments that have like like that like been like it's at least this old? Yeah, so I don't really know how old we are, but I know that you know one of the things that we see archaeologists be obsessed with is our pyramids. So if you look at the Mayan pyramids, um, you know even scientists today are still trying to understand the dynamics, especially the physics behind the pyramids, and they still haven't been able to solve that. So I think that, you know, when we look at indigenous history, it holds on to those, to that engineering, to that physics, 
through the to that sciences that were allowed us ancestors to build those pyramids. So even in one of our pyramids, if you were to clap in front of the pyramid, you will hear our bird bird sounds from the Quetzal, which is a you know a, basically a sacred um, bird from that pyramid. So I think that, you know, that kind of also ties to, and I like, and I love your question, right? Like how old are we are? That ties to that indigenous science because when we look at our ancestors, they were able to build these majestic pyramids that archaeology still tries to understand, to research. But I don't know exactly the time frame of like how old we are, but I'm pretty sure that we're beyond, you know, 14,000 years. That was the Maya Torti that did the all those gorgeous pyramids. I feel like when you connected that, I think my brain almost blew up right on this very zoom yeah because i think we're a part of the mayan civilization and i know that there's over 31 communities of different maya pueblos but yeah in our mayan civilization like we can connect it back to our pyramids and we're lucky to like obviously you know some of them were destroyed during colonization but some of the pyramids are still kept because of tourism right we go back to that economy the government wants to make money but at least we have that item that sacred item where we can hold to our history and say oh our ancestors were able to do that obviously we can't anymore because of colonization it kind of made us go back in time because you know if our ancestors were that advanced then you know i can just only imagine what we will be doing today if we still you know build on to that knowledge how is information passed down over the like how is this work like carried out across generations is it like word of mouth or something? Yeah, so it's oral storytelling, right? So it's like either stories where you sit in the fire or you sit close to your grandma and she will like tell you a story for like five hours, right? So you will listen as a child for five hours. It will also be through prayers, depending on the ceremonies that we hold as, you know, in our communities. It's also through songs. So we do a lot of singing, right? And obviously, oftentimes that those songs carry that knowledge. So I think it's all methods that are oral storytelling, whether it be like songs, prayers, music, um, stories themselves and things like that. So yes, all of you. Ah, <laughs> so like, can you share with us? Because this also was mentioned in Fresh Banana Leaves. Like, how can nature serve as a sanctuary, even like amidst like natural disasters and like other things that can be like quite scary? Yeah, so I think I would tie it back to my father's story because I think that he taught me that nature protects you as long as we protect nature. So my dad always sought nature as a sanctuary, right? Because as a child going through this violence and these like this harsh reality, he always went under a banana tree. Um, even though banana trees are invasive species, which means that they're not native to the Americas, but they were introduced, they kind of became our relatives, right? They're, they're our displaced relatives. So I think that he will always go under a tree um, sing to the tree, kind of play with the tree, climb up the tree, still kind of that tree kind of gave him that sanctuary or that childhood that he was missing because, you know, he had to face this hard reality. And I think that nature can help us, you know, be a sanctuary for us because it kind of allows us to remove ourselves from the reality that these um, systems have created for us, right? So urbanization, we can leave the city to kind of find that sanctuary in nature, we can, you know, all that violence that's happening even today, we can, you know, go to a hike and try to escape that reality. So I think that being given that nature kind of embraces us and kind of, you know, especially we have a close relationship with nature, whether we sing to it, whether we dance around it, it kind of embraces us and kind of 
allows to us to escape that harsh reality that we have to live every day. Mm. Mm. Okay, great. I could just listen to you talk all day long, just saying. So <laughs> how would you distinguish um how would you distinguish indigenous uh science from Western science in terms of like the value of scientists' mm-hmm. personal experiences and perspectives? So I think with Western science, we're or even Western education in general, right? We're taught that nature is, is separate from us, right? Like we're not in a part of nature. And I think that with indigenous science, like I I mentioned our creation stories, right? We were created from nature. We were creating from the elements, from the animals, from everything that's around us. So there's no way that we can separate ourselves from nature because we are nature. And I think that Western education, when you, you know, go through high school, middle school, when you take environmental sciences, when you learned about, you know, sustainability, it always separates humans from nature or even humans from the rest of the animal kingdom, right? Even though we're still animals in that sense of species. And I think that with indigenous science, it teaches us that everything is interconnected. So we have to protect everything as the species that has, you know, formed civilizations in that sense, right? Because we can, you know, we form, I mean, not that all frameworks are positive, but, you know, we have an economy, we have a government while, you know, tigers don't and things like that. So I think that as humans, we are taught that, you know, we had to protect nature so nature can protect us. And in Western science, nature is a commodity, right? So if you have a tree, you can cut it down and sell the timber. Um, If you have, you know, your gardens, you know, I mean, obviously in your, if you have a small garden, you're feeding yourself, but you know, these large agricultural corporations decided to plant all these, um, crops to sell them to people and then exploit people for their labor while they're picking them and obviously sell them in masses. So I think that, you know, indigenous science teaches us that we only take what we need from nature and not be greedy. And I think that Western frameworks like capitalism had taught us to be greedy, right? If you see five corn, you will take all of them as opposed to one because, you know, you're only one person, you might only be eating one corn, not all five, right? But because of that, you know, capitalism that was introduced, it teaches us how to be greedy. So as a result, we continue to separate ourselves from nature as long as, you know, we live in a capitalistic society. <sighs> well, fuck me, honey, because I do love <laughs> impulse buying stuff, but maybe we could do it more responsibly. <laughs> um, but what about like, because I feel like, um, like, Cause like, obviously I'm not like, uh, like I myself am an invasive species. Cause you know, I came from like, you know, I'm pretty sure my folks were from like Holland or something and who the fuck knows where they were before that. But the point is Western doctors, right? Sometimes I'll say like, oh, it's like a feeling that I have, or like I've seen certain things like in nature or just like a feeling that I have about something. And like, that's always written off like our intuitiveness or anything that like they can't verify mathematically. It's just like, that's not true. It, it's like, it's always discounted. And again, I'm not a PhD, nor am I like, I'm not an indigenous scientist or an indigenous person. You are a scientist, you're a PhD. So that exists, right? Don't you feel like there's like a displaced emphasis on like Western medicine in the U S and Europe and like the yeah. Western world? Yes, for sure. How are the ways that you see that affecting people's well-being and like the well-being of just of the world? 
So I think you mentioned a term that I want to like, you know, kind of connect back to indigenous science, invasive species, right? And and that's something that Western sciences teaches us that if you're not native to the lands, you're invasive. But I think that with indigenous science, what it teaches us is that invasive species are displaced relatives. So I would say, you know, you're a displaced relative rather than an invasive species. And I think that with Western medicine, we're taught to kind of like fix the problem, but not the root drivers that are causing that, you know, that ailment or that situation. And I think that, you know, as you were mentioning with Western medicine, it has to be like proved, right? So we have to do experiments. We often experiment on animals, which also kind of disconnects it from indigenous science because, you know, our animals are also our relatives. And um, in indigenous science, We have been holding observations for so many generations since time immemorial, like I mentioned, pre-colonization, that oftentimes because it's not written or it's not recorded, the data is not recorded in numerical, but rather qualitative data because it's oral, it's like verbal. Scientists tend to deny indigenous science as a form of valid science. But I think that myself being trained in the Western sciences And seeing how my dad, my grandmother, my mother, all my relatives taught me about our environment. They just didn't have that Western terminology to call it what Western education teaches us doesn't invalidate their forms of knowing or their knowledge any lesser than Western science that has those tools to build that terminology. Right. So, you know, like Western medicine, we can talk about iron deficiencies versus, you know, in our communities, we can talk about oh, you might not be feeling good you should eat these products. And they will recommend products that are rich in iron, but, you know, they wouldn't call it anemia or any of those Western terminology. So I think that with indigenous science and Western science, they can blend and complement each other because at the end of the day, sometimes they're kind of pointing at the same thing. It's just that they don't have that consensus in the terminology because indigenous scientists or indigenous peoples in general have been denied the access to education And another thing that I wanted to connect is that through indigenous science, um, all of us are scientists, right? Whether you have a PhD or whether you don't. And I think that because we are a part of nature and we have been making observations as humans, we are scientists. It's just that that Western science teaches us that we have to acquire those PhDs or those degrees in order for us to be considered scientists. I think that, you know, you're a displaced relative and you're also a scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm obsessed with displaced relative. I was just reading our notes and I kept reading invasive species. And I was like, it was like my white shame and guilt like left out. I was like, I'm an invasive species. I hate it. Um, but that's, I love that it's like displaced relative is so much sweeter and like nicer. <laughs> Yeah, and that just shows the connection that we have as, you know, as indigenous peoples to other beings. It's not like, oh, you know, they're invasive. It's just that, you know, you're displaced eventually because of colonization. The same way that, you know, invasive, what Western scientists call invasive plants have been displaced because of colonization. Kind of like when we call like a, it's like, you know, a relative. It's like a lot of us have relatives that fucking suck, but they're still our relatives and we still kind of love them, even though they're annoying and they're all you know, like being anti-vax <laughs> or this or that. And you know, so we still got to like, you know, like you still got to love um, your relatives. So that's nice. Yeah. I like just it's better because, you know, we're all still a community, even if we come from different communities. So that's so sweet. I'm obsessed with that. So speaking of anti-vaxxers, sometimes I feel like people who will like not believe Western science 
like on certain things, like whether it's a vaccine or like, you know, there's a lot of mistrust against like HIV medication back in the 80s. And also because of like the inhumanities that have been perpetuated against marginalized communities at the hands of like this Western idea of science, whether that was like experimenting on black and brown people, like there's all sorts of fucked up stuff that happened at the hands of Western science and like, well, it still goes on, you know, with like animals and it is all. And there is still like such a healthcare disparity that's like very racially um, driven. But a lot of times I feel like the people that are anti-science will use indigenous science as a thing of like, well, I like basically like, again, applying that binary thinking of it's either only indigenous science or it's only like Western. But one thing I heard you say is, is that actually there can be they can complement each other and there can be wisdom in both. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think one of the examples that I can give is climate change, right? We still have scientists trying to find the solutions for climate change. But given that indigenous communities are already experiencing the impacts of climate change, some of us have those solutions. Some of us have already adapted to those climate changes that, you know, impacts that we're experiencing in our communities. But then in Western sciences, you know, we're kind of funding the research behind climate climate science as opposed to mitigating and adapting to climate change. And I think that, you know, that would be another way that we can complement one another. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I'm honored that you have me here is that oftentimes in Western science, we still kind of view indigenous communities as research subjects or um, areas of expertise, right? As opposed to seeing us as the experts or the researchers ourselves. So thank you for having me because I think that, you know, in a way you're kind of decolonizing or deconstructing that notion that indigenous peoples are just research subjects or areas of expertise where you're going to research about them, but not necessarily bring them to kind of give their own story and be their own experts. Uh, Yeah, expert AF over here. Uh major and obviously there are probably a lot of people listening and a lot of people in the public that like you know maybe already had like a more evolved understanding of this I still think that there's this like knee-jerk reaction to like um trying to like validate one or the other or like saying that like one or the other is better we've kind of talked about how capitalism has changed those things because it like if you know if there's the five corn take all the corn that was a really good example (laughs) Um, and I'm sure there's like endless other ones but how does like Settler colonialism skew the way in which Western science and indigenous science is valued. Yeah, so thank you. That's a great question. (laughs) So I think with settler colonialism, right, we go back to the notion of who is the scientist, right? It's often people who have credentials, who went to school to study it. But with indigenous science... Um, we are all scientists, right? Because we are all interconnected. We are all living in Earth. We are all making observations of our environments, whether it be more, you know, in our backyards, whether it be in our local environments, whether we go hiking. We're like, oh, did you notice that plant or that flower blossom before, you know, last year? Because, you know, of climate change impact. So we're already observing those notices or those observations or differences. And I think with cellular colonialism, it has taught us that if it's not written, if it's not peer review, if it's not you know, it doesn't go through this rigorous research um, project in a lab, then it's not really science. And I think that with indigenous science, because we don't have those tools to make a rigorous, you know, lab project or a research area, we are oftentimes invalidated. Oftentimes we are the experts. We're seen as these pristine creatures, right? Because we have that stereotype of the ecological noble savage where, you know, settler colonialism introduced that. And I think that as an indigenous scientist, I have to navigate that, right? Because I don't, you know, oftentimes when we have stereotypes 
that impact our identities, we have to kind of navigate that so that we don't perpetuate that stereotype even more. And I think that stereotype of the ecological noble savage, where every indigenous person is in tuned and kind of interconnected with nature, tends to happen a lot, right? Because it happened when settler colonialism came through the anthropological narratives that were written about us because, you know, we were so interconnected with nature. We never separated ourselves from nature. And I think that with settler colonialism, it taught us how to, uh, you know, it amplifies certain stereotypes that were created as a result. So we have to balance it. So it tying it to displacement because a lot of indigenous peoples are displaced from their ancestral lands. Some generations have that relationship with nature fractured with, you know, that relationship with their environments destroyed or they're kind of reclaiming those relationships because they have been displaced from their lands. And I think that we tie it to um, how displacement impacts indigenous peoples in the United States, we're seeing a high influx of climate refugees. But when you see how, for instance, Haiti, how Haiti experienced a natural disaster, the earthquake, and then obviously climate change impacts are, you know, drivers that impact, you know, political economy, everything. It's kind of displacing Haitians to the United States. But then we see how the United States criminalizes displacement in the form of immigration policies and then how they're mistreated, even as they're trying to seek asylum and refuge rather than, you know, immigrating as um, that narrative tries to criminalize them. And like, go get in the line like you can do it, but go get in line. And then it's like there is no fucking line. And yeah, and they're being deported. So, you know, through the policies, we have the MPP and I think it's a migrant protection plant where they're just being deported. So they're getting in line just to get deported. So, you know, going back to that, it's like Title 42, the United States used that policy to say, well, we are in, in the pandemic. So anybody who tries to come to our country is deported back to Mexico. So, you know, it's like seeing how certain things are used by settler colonial governments to kind of dismiss that asylum you know, process or that refuge seeking that many of these indigenous peoples are being displaced as a form of climate change. And, you know, climate change obviously impacts the political spectrum in Haiti. The president was assassinated. So they had to, you know, a lot of people had to flee. And I think that seeing how the United States treats climate refugees and, and knowing that the climate refugees crisis is going to increase because we, our governments are not doing anything to reduce or mitigate climate change. I think that, you know, it's, it's going to be something sad that we will have to face, especially our generation, as we see those numbers increase. OK, so to recap, it's like Settler colonialism has kind of really imposed these uh, borders that didn't used to exist. They imposed these like governments and ways of thinking in terms of like gender, uh, agriculture, um, like so, so many things. And then also that created so much displacement. And then another thing that we learned from Dr. Elizabeth Rule, um, who is an incredible uh, Native American activist and uh, scholar, she was telling us about how this government has gone back on so many of the treaties that it agreed to over the course of the, you know, of a long time. So it's just interesting that, you know, when you bring up asylum, which is something that we agreed to this, you know, new this government, the United States government, we created this idea of asylum. It's like a constitutionally guaranteed right. I'm pretty sure. And the other thing I wanted to ask, I was just like the fucking patriarchy. Like, because one thing I feel like I've heard is, is that like a lot of indigenous communities just don't have that whole like man thing. 
Like, and there are, there is like a gender spectrum and like a lot of them are like matriarchal like society. Mm -hmm. So like any other thoughts on like how patriarchy or the idea of patriarchy affects the validation um, and the value given to indigenous science? Yeah. So I think in my Zapotec community, my maternal community from where my mom is from, she like, you know, they're still matriarchal. So one of the things that my dad taught me or always told me was that in order for him to marry my mom, he had to undo his patriarchal ways. So for instance, in our communities, if we are in a gathering, the woman, our matriarchs, our elder woman will speak first, then our mooses, and then our woman. And the mooses is the third gender that, you know, they're assigned a male at birth, but they have the dualities of both the female and the male spirit. The patriarchy kind of has like also infiltrated many indigenous communities, right? Because I think it's not that many indigenous communities that are still because, you know, there's a difference between, I think, matrilineal, where, you know, you kind of inherited your uh, mom's line and matriarchy where the women are still the head of the table. And I think that for my Zapotec community, we still have a matriarchal society where the women are the head of the table. And I know that a lot of researchers and um people have kind of written about our communities, about the matriarchy, because, you know, it's something that seems out of this world, especially since patriarchy is global. And for that sense, I think that two ecological Frameworks are trying to dismantle that patriarchy that's embedded in our environment is queer ecology. Queer ecology um, basically tries to prevail heterosexist discourses and institution articulations of sexuality and nature. So it talks about how, you know, even in biology, like ecosystems, ecology, it's like this perceived notion that, you know, it's every animal's in a heterosexual relationship with like um male and female but in reality that's not the case so queer ecology tries to dismantle that because you know that's the patriarchal notion that teaches us oh you know it's always a male and a female binary genders and the other one is ecofeminism that kind of brings forward queer folks and also women to the forefront of dismantling that patriarchy that's embedded in environmentalism so the two terms are queer ecology and ecofeminism okay so here's a random question that i didn't think i was going to ask in response to that amazing information. So at what point do fucking men have to fucking dismantle it themselves? Or is it one of those things that like no one ever wants to willingly give up power? So we have to do it, period. And then there'll just be like some cool men with probably like, you know, really loving souls and a very loving spirit that will dismantle it. My filter just worked. I was about to make a nasty sex joke. And then I realized that that was like probably some colonialism about like celebrating like bigger stuff versus smaller stuff. So I was like, no loving spirit. Okay. Yes. And, and yes. So yeah. Do you think that men are ever going to fucking like cisgender men who are set? Like, have you ever seen like in your experience, like some just like fucking dick? Like, like some <laughs> dick, like, like unlearn their dickish ways and then like become like nicer for the environment and like celebrate like indigenous science more. So I see that a lot with my students because I teach um, climate science, introduction to climate science, like you're welcome to come to class any day. But I also <sighs> integrate indigenous science. And I think that in the recent lectures, I talked about queer ecology and ecofeminism. I kind of brought them the framework of patriarchy and how it's embedded in ecology. And a lot of my cisgender male students, you know, they were a little bit uncomfortable, right? Because they were looking down. They were not doing eye contact with me as I was lecturing while, you know, my queer students 
students and my female students were like, yeah, yeah, you know, like listening, being very integrated. But when it came to having those discussions, um, my cisgender male students actually reflected and I was like, yes, we need you at the table. We need you dismantling patriarchy because they were talking about how, you know, in order for us to heal our lands, we also have to kind of dismantle the patriarchy because patriarchy teaches us that there's an ownership of female bodies, right? And because nature is considered a female, right? We have mother earth, we have mother nature. Patriarchy teaches us that we own mother earth, right? We own the planets, we own the environments, the resources. So as a result of that, being able to tie that to that, to those two things, like even what I just mentioned, students were reflecting on that. They were like, wait a minute, in order for us to actually heal our mother earth and mitigate those climate change impacts and think about not just ourselves, but the future generations, I have to sit in this uncomfortable situation and actually do something about it. You know, I'm hopeful for them, but obviously... We still have a lot of cisgender men in power. We still have them kind of dictating how we move around in, you know, settler colonialism in this current government. So I'm hopeful, but, you know, it's still going to be a long ways. So this is like another random question. I'm so sorry. Are these young people, are we, are we fucked as an educator? That's what I want to ask you. (laughs) Are we fucked or are you hopeful and we're fucked? Because it's probably more of a spectrum, not a binary. Like how or or how fucked are we, in your opinion, as an educator? So I think that, you know, it's interesting because I just had I forget who told me in this conversation, right, that um, when we talk about climate change, the earth will be fine. It's us who are fucked. Right. So if climate change were to destroy, um, you know, you know, continue to continue, um, accelerate and become worse, we're going to be destroyed as species. Right. Because the earth is still going to be a planet. It's just that we're not going to be living on this earth. And I think that we do have a spectrum of students, especially from the Gen C. But I also see how they're, they have the willing, the willingness to fight against those, you know, those frameworks. We see how even in the United Nations, the COP26 conference, we saw youth come to the front lines and be like, you know, this is like a, like a shit show, right? Cause they're bringing in all these fossil fuel industries, giants to the conference to talk about climate change when they're the ones responsible. So we're seeing the younger generation kind of bring to light those issues. And I think that teaching it's it's also a lack of awareness or a lack of education that many people still have and i mean you're here kind of what i would say decolonizing that way of thinking right because you're like oh i want to learn about this so let me go and decolonize this colonial mindset where you know i'm taught to read a book you're bringing in people who have that lived experiences and sharing their expertise so i think that you know there we're leading that decolonizing um kind of movements to kind of undo those layers that colonialism has embedded in our society. So I'm hopeful, but it's probably, it's probably something that we're not going to see in our lifetime. Yeah. Okay. So like, <laughs> like hope, but like we might be fucked. Like it remains to be seen. The jury's still out is what yeah. I hear you saying from that. Okay. Got it. Great. So <laughs> um, now going back onto my planned questions um, <laughs> with, uh, with eco-colonialism, because like, like, well, what is eco-colonialism? Yeah, eco-colonialism is just like how cellular colonialism has um, impacted our environments, right? So in the case of eco-colonialism, it kind of ties back to what you were mentioning, patriarchy, right? Where it's cisgender men 
um, who have the authority to govern our natural resources without consulting indigenous communities is the severe altering of our environments due to climate change and other human cause impacts, whether it be urbanization or deforestation, because, you know, they're trying to introduce large agricultural corporations or entities. And it's also the reality that, you know, when it comes to, um, environmentalism women and two-spirit folks are often ignored or not even elevated in the, those discourses right because it's always the men who's given the microphone this is gender men who's given the mic and never passed down to two-spirit or one for female so what about like the privatization of like land how is that altering indigenous landscapes so I think in in my communities, one of the things that we still experience is land theft, right? Where the government steals our lands. And as a result, they sell, you know, hundreds of acres of our land in what they call land grabs um, to large corporations. So we are seeing how, for instance, the banana um, or mangoes or avocados, they were all introduced to the Americas, right? Through those land grabs where um, international corporations were like, oh, I'm going to buy all these like acres of lands. And then kind of um, create these plantations so that we can, you know, export and import um, these commodities, right? Because they're no longer um, natural resources, right? The way that indigenous peoples view it, it's more commodities, right? To fuel the agricultural economy. Um, and I think that through that representation of lands, we're seeing how as a result, more land is being stolen or the land that was given to indigenous peoples is being impacted the most by climate change. We're seeing, you know, it kind of relates back to that displacement that many of us are, you know, and our relatives are given the only chance that in order for them to thrive, they have to leave their ancestral land. So I think that displacement, you know, fractures our indigeneity and fractures our indigenous um, science and history because, you know, we had to adapt to a new environment and, if we make it right, because, you know, displacement is not an easy journey, as we have noticed and witnessed that, you know, the United States, how it kind of continues to use those violent techniques, you know, against climate refugees at the borders. So what about tourism? Yeah, so with tourism, um, most of the touristic um, locations, like even like going back to the pyramids, right? Like the pyramids are like something from our ancestors. But when it comes to tourism, the money that goes, that is kind of obtained from that tourism because people want to go visit the pyramids is not given to indigenous peoples, right? It's given to, to fuel the economy, the government and these larger corporations that own those sites now, right? So I think that, you know, when we look at sacred sites and these majestic um, landscapes and how they're commodified for tourism, they don't really impact or, you know, have any effect on the indigenous communities rather than negative impacts. And we look at Hawaii, right? Like how there's a large tourism going to Hawaii, but when it comes to the native Hawaiians, the Karakanaka Maoli, 
they're not given any kind of um they don't benefit from tourism they just see how their island continues to be desecrated because you know tourism we have a lot of um pollution they have a lot of pollution you know sunscreen they're you know the sunscreen the toxins in the sunscreen can alter the coral reefs kill a lot of the marine life so we see how tourism only benefits the people who are already in power and not necessarily the indigenous peoples of those lands or landscapes and then meanwhile you're just like this dumb fucking tourist like my fucking ass who just wants to go to like a turquoise beach and then there's like indigenous people and communities literally most everywhere because like even like because yeah. i didn't go to hawaii for my honeymoon because i was like i'm not gonna be a goddamn fucking i'm not gonna go fuck them up anymore because they were having all this like covid outbreak yeah. and stuff so then i was like let me go to the turks and caicos they were like having like less tourism and they were like you know open and stuff but then when i went there Coral Reef all fucked up. Like it's, you know, and then like the people that took us there because I wanted to go like see it. We're like, yeah, it's like even in their life, it's changed so much. Like it used to be way wow. more vibrant and all of the like sunscreen and just like this like, heavy tourization or touring, like this like little island that I had went to, like it's totally like done a thing to the reefs. And then I was like, fuck. So is the only way for us to really like be responsible, like people is to just like, do staycations because like it's probably not going to help the local community no matter where you go. Yeah, I always have to ask that question or even ask myself, right? Because I also love traveling. I also like, you know, kind of learning from other cultures. And I think that um, it doesn't necessarily say that we shouldn't visit certain communities. It's just that we should do our homework and actually look at things that are actually, you know, owned by the local people as opposed to like an international corporation. Because I mean, the United States, you know, a lot of companies own a lot of touristic sites outside of the United States. And I think if we do our homework and we're like, oh, this is like, you know, kind of supporting your local business. And I think it, it applies to um, also outside of the United States, right? Because we tend to say, oh, look, you know, support your local small business. But when we go visit, you know, we just want to want the easiest access, right? We don't want to like do that homework and be like, oh, these are local shops. And I think that, you know, elevating them and um, giving them a platform so that, you know, they can continue to sustain will kind of hopefully allow them to regain that, um, that power to kind of throw, you know, throw away these larger corporations out of business so that they can leave their lands and, you know, it can be more locally managed as well. Okay. <laughs> yes. Now, like, what will it take to start healing indigenous landscapes? Supporting the land back movement. And the land back movement is basically, you know, a lot of people are using that, like, oh, they want to deport us, like, if we're not native to these lands. Have you heard about the land back movement? Isn't that like how that, like, didn't, is that, in, is there, has there been some of that in California where, like, they gave some of the, like, the land back or no? Yes, yes. So it's kind of like not just necessarily giving back the land because, you know, obviously if there's like a lot of indigenous lands has been urbanized, so you cannot give a city back to the indigenous communities. But given um, the the autonomy to govern and steward those lands to indigenous communities, especially the local indigenous communities who have, you know, the history that dates pre-colonization since time immemorial, the opportunity to steward and govern their lands, that would be a way that we can hear our indigenous lands, right? Because obviously... Capitalism is teaching us that if we find five corn, like we mentioned, you take all five, not just the one that you need. So I think that, you know, giving the stewardship to indigenous communities can allow us to not just heal our lands, but also heal ourselves, right? Because you were mentioning how as humans, we also carry that trauma or that pain that we have um, 
kind of experience, but we also forget that we also carry the pain from our previous generations and the trauma they also experienced because of intergenerational trauma. So allowing us to not just heal our lands, but heal ourselves as human beings as well. Yes. Okay. So then other than like the land back movement, who else is like kind of doing this work? Are they like the kind of like the main like fierce movement right now? Or is there kind of like lots of different people? Yeah, there's a lot of um, people and I'm trying to think of like, for instance, in Guatemala, the Maya Kekchi community is actually fighting um, against the mining companies. So unfortunately, you know, they're facing a lot of violence from the government because, you know, they have sent their police troops to, you know, throw rubber bullets, to throw tear gas, to and it's our indigenous women who are like in the front and center. But yet, you know, if you if you were to see articles about the Maya Kekchi community, you probably will see more men splatter on the posters than our females, our indigenous women. So I think the indigenous women and and um our two spirit relatives, whether it be Musas or whatever, each community kind of refers to them is basically the front and center of these movements. So anything that they're doing, let's just join behind them and support them. Oh, ooh, okay. So, what, like, so that's an example in Guatemala of, of fighting against like the mining, the mining folks. We also, on our damn displacement episode, learned about this like fierce um, indigenous community in the Amazon that pushed back on this um, one like dam, like or at least like mo- or like kind of did. So that's so that's like an example of like some healing and practice, like it being able to be like kind of undone and kind of given back. Um, but how can well, and I think, so my next question, I think I am actually just going to decolonize in real fucking life, honey. So you can, you can see how <laughs> much you've taught me already. My question was, how can scientists and non-scientists reflect on this positionality? But we're all scientists. So how can people, how can people uh, better reflect on, on how to, um, help to heal indigenous landscapes, no matter who we are, indigenous or not, no matter where you live, um, no matter who you are, how can we all knowing that we are actually scientists by way of like being sentient beings who like, you know, observe stuff like how can we start to reflect on this and make better choices? I think one of the things that I always tell um, everyone to start with is like start to learn whose indigenous lands you're currently living on. And I think that once you learn whose indigenous lands you're living on, like research what movements that community is kind of trying to amplify or is leading to, you know, to heal our landscapes. Because I think that, you know, oftentimes we always talk about, you know, situations being black or white, but in reality, we have to meet in the gray area, right? We need solidarity. We need collaboration. We need support. We need allies. And I think that, you know, for my communities, a lot of the movements that we're taking are against these large corporations that have been kind of desecrating our lands for so many years, whether it be for extractive energy sources like fossil fuels in the Mayakechi community example that I gave is against, you know, mining for gold and silver. And I think that um, being able to support those communities fight against not just foss- the fossil fuel industry, but other industries are also ultimately desecrating our lands and creating um, climate change to increase at a rapid rate that can be a great way for us to, you know, become allies, become supporters. And even as a displaced indigenous woman, um, I'm currently on Duwamish lands, right? Seattle, named after Chief Seattle. I am learning how to be a welcome guest. So I'm learning how to, you know, I'm basically participating in events that the Duwamish tribe is leading. I'm kind of building that relationship with the local indigenous communities, even as an indigenous person, because, you know, at the end of the day, these are not my ancestral lands. I'm a displaced and I'm 
you know, an unwelcome guest and we're moving, at least, you know, we have to navigate those relationships to become a welcome guest, right? Because, um, these, like what I, my grandma always taught me is that we should see indigenous lands as somebody's home. And then we just enter somebody's home without even knocking at the door. So we are in a welcome guest in their homes. And then we have to, you know, build that relationship so that they can open the door to us and become a welcome guest. So I think that would be a good start um, to dismantling and decolonizing center colonialism and patriarchy. Yes. Yes. Okay. Next question. So what do you think or because you are an incredible educator, what do you see as the role of indigenous science in classrooms and environmental policy? I think that, you know, what we're discussing even today in this um, episode, it's like a lot of the things that I teach students. And I think one of the, the things that I guess it might be the indigenous ways that I was raised is that I shouldn't just see myself as a knowledge holder. Like I'm also learning a lot from you, especially recounting other testimonies. So I think that, as a learner and in, to teach indigenous science, we still have to embody that multi-directional learning where we're not just learning from one person. We're, you know, doing that multi-directional learning where we're learning from one another. And I think that with um, environmental education, especially when you take a class, it's only the instructor, the teacher, the professor kind of lecturing you as opposed to, you know, allowing you to bring your lived experiences or your, you know, testimonies or other recounts that people have shared with you as a part of that learning process. And I think that with the way that I bring Indigenous science to the classroom, I always tell the students that, you know, I'm not just the expert or the knowledge holder. Like I might be that expert in my lived experiences, but we all have the lived experiences that if we kind of find something that unites us in those lived experiences, we can amplify indigenous movements as a whole, as a group, right? As relatives, whether we're displaced or whether we're native to these lands. Yes, Queen, what is next <laughs> for you and your work? Your first book just came out. I feel like it is like just going to be very successful. What's coming up for you? I think I'm going to, I'm still going to be in academia. So I'm still going to move through that trajectory. And I think that, you know, I would love to write another book and seeing, um, that might be in the works as of now. And then seeing what is something that, you know, that people may want to read or learn more about. And I think that one of the things about our generation as millennials and the Gen Z is that there's more openness to learn from one another as opposed to, you know, the previous generations, not to bash them, but, you know, there's that, you know, the previous generations are more kind of closed up to, you know, learning or wanting to learn from other identities. And I think that, you know, I have a lot of hope and faith for our generation, especially the millennials. I think we're leading the pathway so that gents, you know, we're doing, how does the saying go? We walked so they could run. Is that how yes. the saying goes? Yes. yes. <laughs> so we walked as a, as the millennials so the Gen Z's can run and, you know, address those disparities and those systems that need to be deconstructed or decolonized. Yes. And then so and then I think if, if you're listening to this episode and you were just like have been snapping the Z formation this whole time, if you were just <laughs> like, yes, preach queen, like we're going to make sure that we list all of the links so that people can find you, follow your work on the episode description of whatever they're listening to the show on. Um, but if people are just like obsessed, like they're like, that's not going to be enough. Like, I think I'm mm -hmm. experiencing like a passion or like career shift or like maybe not even career shift. Maybe they're just like, because we're decolonizing. We're not even doing fucking careers around. We're just, <laughs> no, we are doing careers, but you know, but we're doing it like yeah. responsibly and stuff. So like what, 
like if, if, if listeners are just obsessed and they want to learn more, what resources could we direct them to? I guess the land back movement would be a great way. Also like native land dot Canada, where you can learn whose indigenous lands you're occupying or living on. So you just type in your zip code and it kind of shows you the indigenous territories. And let's see, and just reading more Indigenous scholarship, because I know that Indigenous scholarship or Indigenous written books don't get as much kind of publicity or they don't, you know, people are not really interested in them. So, you know, picking up more Indigenous books, um, Indigenous, you know, books written by Indigenous people so that, you know, because one of the things is that as Indigenous peoples, as you mentioned, we're place based, right? So we all have different ways of teaching different knowledges that we have formed through the generations. So there's always something to learn from other Indigenous peoples as well. Uh, and if you're listening to this part of the episode and you have not heard me say it already, that is <laughs> such a coinkadink because your first book is out yesterday. You can get it right now. Um, it is called Fresh Banana Leaves. Um, Dr. Jessica Hernandez, I have had such an incredible hour and 15 minutes with you. This was an incredible episode with incredible information. And, and actually, I don't want to skip this part. Is there anything that we missed that you would just, if you were just like, Carl, you didn't ask me that? Or like, is there anything that you just feel like we need to like make sure folks know not to put the pressure on you in this final hour? You can also feel complete. But if there's something that you or just someone who you're really inspired by or if there's anything that we missed, this is your this is your moment. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people can learn from you, right? Because I think like, I don't know if you like to be praised, but I'm like, you know, you being like bringing people being willing to learn from other people is a great way to, you know, incorporate how we can decolonize the way that we have been taught. So yeah, thank you for having me and, you know, continue to listen to your, hopefully people continue to listen to your podcast because I think, you know, I've had listened to all of the episodes almost and, you know, there's a lot of learning that we can take from other people. So yeah, following, following you as a model to how we can decolonize the way that we're taught that, you know, um, people are ex research subjects or areas of expertise rather than the experts themselves. So thank you for having me here. Okay, I don't know why that almost made me cry. It literally made me emotional. You listen to our podcast. I have your book too. So I'm going to pretend oh you signed it. God. No, you should send it to me and I'll, um, I'll sign it. That is like, whenever I really respect someone and then I don't expect, I don't know why I'm like working on it in therapy. I like never expect someone who I really respect to be like into my work because I'm always like invalidating my work. Oh no. That made me so emotional. Maybe it's because I haven't when I got today, the email, so I'm like feeling all my I was feelings. Like, I was screaming. I was like, I can't believe it's Jonathan from you know Queer uh, Eye. Yeah, I'm uh, not actually a uh, fan, so I was a little oh my bit nervous. God. Yeah. <laughs> you are like making me blush. You are so incredible. I'm so excited <laughs> for you. And I'm also so excited for you to continue. To share your scholarship, I think it's so, um, like, you didn't have to share what you have spent your life learning with people and the way that you have in Fresh Banana Leaves. So I really, really encourage people. There's so much wisdom in there. We're going to include some excerpts in it uh, for our social. But we are just so excited that you came on the episode. We are such big fans of yours. Um I think that's like the third time someone's ever made me cry in the podcast. There's been like over 200 episodes. So that was like kind of major. Oh, sorry. No, I like it. No, but, it's good. But it's good. crying is healing. Like even um, what my elders always tell me is that, you know, a lot of our indigenous songs are like, they sound like wailing or like cries because, you know, that's our ancestors speaking through us or, you know, healing as a, so when we cry, we're not just healing for ourselves. We're healing for those previous generations that, you know, need, needed that healing or still need that healing, right? Because they're still with us spiritually speaking. Dr. Esca Hernandez, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're amazing. We love you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. 
Our guest this week was Dr. Jessica Hernandez. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Yes! You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 